Hey everybody, welcome to the Talking Book Podcast. My name is Chris Hartram, and it is Halloween. Whoa. Talking Book is a mission-driven audiobook publisher of independent literature from Asheville, North Carolina in the mountains. It is Halloween today. It's October 31st, um, and I get to talk to Miriam Gerba. And I I thought that uh, Miriam Gerba was extremely cool and very talented um, and interesting uh, and funny for a very long time. So it's awesome that we got to record uh, her new book, um, Mean, that's going to be out November 7th, a week from now, uh, from Coffeehouse and also actually technically from Emily Books, which is an imprint of Coffeehouse, uh, November 7th, Mean, Miriam Gerba. But anyway, um, yeah, we have a Halloween chat. Uh, she was at her place of work, um, a high school in California, and we just uh, had a quick chat about uh, some stuff. Uh, so put your Halloween candy aside, sit back, and here's my conversation with Miriam Gerba, author of Mean, out November 7th. Hey, is this Miriam? Yes, it is. Hi. Hey, Miriam, it's Chris. Hi, nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you too. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I think I think this is the the second time we talked really briefly uh, to set yes. up the audiobook back in the day. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Where uh, where are you right now? I'm at school. Oh, you're a, that's right. You're a teacher. That's cool. What uh, mm-hmm. what what uh, yeah. what do you teach? Social science. I teach economics, government, and American history. Oh, cool! At um, a high school or a college or high school. Wow, that's amazing. How uh, <laughs> how, how, how long have you been doing that? Um, like fifteen-ish years. Fifteen-ish years. That's amazing. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's really cool to hear. Uh, I feel like you know a lot of the times. One, one assumes that, uh, you know, if you're a writer, then you must be teaching like at a community college or, uh, or a university oh, yeah. or something like that. But yeah. uh, what, what made you decide to want to do high school? Cause I, I think that sounds really awesome. Uh, misfortune. <laughs> misfortune. Do tell. Um, what is that? Like, uh, I, I, I didn't want to teach on K through 12, like my parents both did. So my way of rebelling was to not be a teacher. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, um, I moved to Long Beach from the Bay area about 16, 17 years ago. And when I came here, one of the first, um, uh, job ads that I saw was for a teaching position. So I took it, even though I didn't have a credential, I just figured, okay, I'll just do this until <laughs> I can move on to something else. Sure. And it's been 17 years and something else still hasn't come up. So, um, who knows? I might be doing this for another 17 years. Okay. Well, no, that, that's very honest. I mean, do you, do you, I mean, I feel like from reading, uh, from your book mean, which is, you know, why, why I'm calling, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh-huh. scenes at schools, a lot of schoolyard scenes. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. And so I oh, imagine you, I imagine you in schools, like in my brain now. So that oh, makes. Oh yeah. Cause I never not at school. <laughs> right. Yeah. That makes total sense. Yeah, school feels like 
a, a womb to me. Like, it's a womb that I will never exit. I just sit in the womb of school. Like, you know what I mean? Like, most people's school is, like, this formative thing for them. Right. But for me, it's, like, a lifelong thing. And it was for my parents, too. So it just, it's it's familiar and cozy and, and home-like to me to be on a campus. So both of your parents, they were teachers as well. They were in academics. Yeah. or And you said, did you say K through 12? Is that what you said? K through 12, yeah. My mom taught... Um, kindergarten and second grade. And then my dad taught elementary school, fourth and fifth grade. And then he went on to um, elementary school administration. Um, And so, yeah, so that's, yeah. So they've, they've been on, they devoted their lives to public education. That's amazing. You know, I want why I have you on uh, this this topic. I need to ask you a very you know you and I don't know each other, um, but we do, <laughs> we do now. And uh, and though though we don't know each other very well, I do um, I do trust I trust your opinion. All of a sudden, for some reason, I just do. <laughs> so I need you to help me with my life direction. Do you think? Oh my goodness. Do you think I taught uh, I taught for many years uh, when I lived overseas when I was in my twenties. I I, I, I uh, lived a, abroad and taught, and then I haven't done it for. Um, I don't know, four, four years now. Um, uh-huh. and, but recently I've been thinking, I'm like, man, I, I miss working with, uh, younger people and, uh, teaching was fun. Uh-huh. I, I could probably do that again. And I've been telling myself mm-hmm. that, but w- what do you think? Honestly, you should, you, you should say there, Chris, I think you should, uh, uh, you should think about that and go for that. Or, you know, uh, I like teaching, but I, um, you know, I, it's, I don't want to do it that, you know, forever. Like, well, what's your review of teaching right now at this point in your life? It's hard for me to give advice regarding teaching, especially K through 12, because I teach in California and teaching is, is unique to every state. Like public education is governed by each state, right? Each state legislature and each district really organizes the system of public education for that region. So people will frequently like have these conversations that discuss American education as if we have a national system, but we don't. We have these tiny regional systems that can differ really dramatically um, from place to place. And so I can only really assess what teaching is like in California. And while teaching um, was like presented to me as a really stable profession by both of my parents, and it provided a lot of stability for the both of them, it no longer provides that. It's undergoing some really seismic shifts, especially at the higher levels, especially in higher education. But those shifts are starting to trickle down, and those changes are starting to trickle down, and it's making the teaching profession less stable than it has historically been. And so that's, that would be what I would caution anybody who was thinking about going into education about, to consider um, the perhaps future unpredictability and instability of, of education. My God, that was such a better, more well-crafted answer than I was expecting. Oh. <laughs> that was amazing. Yeah, it's actually, that's that's a great point because I, uh, I live in uh, North Carolina, Talking Book is in North Carolina, yeah. and... Uh, my friends who are teachers here, they do all the time say, um, you know, we should move to California. Like I hear it's great there in North Carolina, public education, <laughs> they just like take shits on yeah. us. And I, I don't know if that's true, but that seems to be the word on the street. Yeah, it's I mean, I, I don't know anybody who lives 
in your state, but um, I have friends who teach in other states, and it's, it's just it's interesting to hear how different the teaching profession is, but also how similar it is from place to place, even just the way climate affects being a teacher. Do you know what I mean? Because like sure. my, my childhood best friend teaches in Georgia, and she'll tell me stories about snow days or like schools that are entirely enclosed because like uh, the weather is so terrible that people can't go outside. And in California, so much of the day is spent outside. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, definitely. So, so yeah, so uh, teaching is a is a strange beast here in the United States because of federalism. Too hmm. many crickets. Yeah, that's that's. <laughs> yeah, I, I, always, I always we we should just have we God, we need to have an entire other episode just on education reform and, uh, and <laughs> what's going on with uh, public education. But I uh, I will say that when uh, when I I lived in Los Angeles for a brief time in high school and I remember being outside all the time going from class to class. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, and it's not like that as much here. I mean, the South where we live in North Carolina, it's, it's, yeah. it is a sunny, uh, pretty place, not like California, but I, I totally saw that difference, the climate wise and indoor outdoor. Yeah. Yeah. When I was, um, when, when my editors were going over my manuscript, um, they had difficulty understanding the, um, the descriptions that I gave of some of the school campuses, because they couldn't conceive of like an open plan school, because they live in snow. Right, because so, Coffee House Press, the they're uh, they're always cold. Yes. Right. Yes. So yes. they were like, "What? Wait, wait. Why is the person walking across grass to their class?" And I was like, <laughs> "Because, <laughs> because that's how schools are in California. They're all open. You don't have to deal with flooding. You don't deal with snow. You don't deal with hail. It's just sun, sun, sun. So, like, yes, you walk past the palm trees on your way to fifth period. It's not weird. Um, so wait, that brings yeah, me to so. that brings me to the question: Is California, <laughs> just to get this out of the way, is California as far as public education goes? Is it still the uh, the island in the sun uh, compared to other states, as maybe teachers in other places think of it as? Or did you say the the trickle down effect is also affecting California public education? That it's not not the peach that um, everyone thinks it is, or it, maybe it I is. Don't think- I don't think that it's the peach that everybody thinks that it is. And again, <laughs> it's like, it really is, it really differs just from district to district. Right. Like mm-hmm. Los Angeles Unified School District has a notorious reputation, right? But then you can go um, to Orange County and encounter a completely different school district that doesn't have, let's say, like the same history of corruption that LAUSD has. So it's, so, like, California is such an incredibly diverse state, and the districts are just as diverse. So I would say that it's not, like, the land of milk and honey when it comes to education by any means. I can't remember which state was, though. I remember there was one particular state that was, like, the state. It wasn't California that I remember hearing touted in education circles, but for whatever reason, it's escaping me. And it was someplace dumb, like Idaho <laughs> A <or> dumb place. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, people in like Idaho. I don't want to go to school there, right. but um, but but apparently, like the education system is great, or at least they teach they treat their teachers really well. But I can't remember, uh, I can't remember where that was. It's escaping me right now. I, I had someone in, uh, who's I live on the in, in Western NC, so near South Carolina, and I, I had someone recently tell me who's a South Carolina teacher saying that like they would be better off working at Burger King, and uh, I was just like, man, that sounds like a sounds rough. <laughs> 
Yeah, that sounds rough, and that sounds really hyperbolic. But, <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, definitely can't, can't, definitely can't be true. Um, I've right? never worked it's at Burger like, King, on, but who knows? Seriously, yeah. I don't really think you want to work at Burger King, but whatever. <laughs> right, um, yeah. No, totally. Well, you know— uh, It's like my students. It's like my students, like the other day, these, these kids were complaining about an assignment that I'd given them because I, I give them book work sometimes, and then if they, if they have book work and they have questions to answer from a book, I always tell them they need to write the questions, too, because otherwise they just wind up with a bunch of gobbledygook answers that they don't know. Um, they don't know what the answers correspond to. So one of the girls was complaining, this is torture. You're torturing us, blah, blah, blah. And I was like <laughs> laughing and shaking my head because um, I was writing an essay. Like I was writing a, a piece of art criticism um, that, uh, that, that actually has to do with torture. <laughs> like it, it was a piece of art criticism relating to Brazil and political art in Brazil. It's a response to state-sponsored torture. Uh-huh. And I was just shaking my head the whole time thinking, girl, if you really knew what torture was, you would not be complaining that having to write down 50 questions <laughs> is, is going gonna, is gonna, to you know, cause your heart to stop beating. So, um, yeah, kids, totally. kids are cute. Yeah, I mean, you know, that kind of that kind of makes me uh now now I'm I'm picturing this this uh vision, this world of Miriam Gerba as a high school teacher and and now what I what I'm seeing is like all the kids are probably like Ms. Gerba's the coolest. She's so rad. Is is it I mean, not you're not going to talk about yourself in such a favorable light, I'm sure, but I imagine like um, you know, what I know of you reading your book, like, you know, I think I think I um I think I saw you do something at AWP like two years ago. But anyway, this, this, uh-huh. mo- this thing I have in my mind is like that you're probably the cool teacher now. Is that, do, would you say that's possible or are there a lot of cool teachers or? Um, I don't know that I'd necessarily say that. I think that sometimes the students are surprised because I, I don't look like a traditional teacher. Right. But then, but then once they're actually in my class, they're like, Oh, it's a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> She's just <And> then- <laughs> a teacher. Yeah. And then there's like some disappointment, especially when I have to discipline. It's like, it looks like that and a discipline. So, um, so I mean, you know, a teacher is a teacher, even if it's covered in tattoos. So yeah, totally. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think some of them, I think some of them, some of them have fun. I'm sure they do. They're like, well, Miss Gerba has a cool new novel coming out from coffee house. That's (laughs) hip. She's so dope. I love these questions. They'll try to they'll try to bait me into conversations like that, and I I don't take the bait. Oh, uh, like you'll so, you'll just avoid uh, personal stuff like that altogether because you know that I they're. Mean, I'll tell anecdotes if they're short anecdotes or if like they're not going to lead us too off task. Like if kids are doing independent work, and then I'll be reminded of an anecdote. I might tell like some kids the anecdote, or if it somehow relates to like a lecture and it's just like a little, you know, a little one minute tangent, then I might do it. But I don't talk about my writing life or my art life at school. Sure. Yeah, I could see that. I'm trying to remember if, I mean, I wasn't a, a cool high school kid for sure, but <laughs> I, 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 can't, I don't think, I think that would have been right before I started understanding the uh, the romantic concept of the artist or the writer and like what their life must be like and thinking of that as this badass kind of like on the edge of society <laughs> coolness. And so maybe high school kids don't think of that romantic idea, but I'm sure some of them do. They've got to. I think that some of them do. And ironically, those that do have the idea, not all of them, but some of them are incredibly annoying. Now I'm like, (laughs) oh my God, that was what I was in high school. I was one of those. And I just, oh God, and all I did was roll my eyes. 
Yeah, no, like that I've, makes total I've, sense. I've caught kids like in the middle of some sort of history lecture trying to write a novel, and I'm like, listen. <laughs> You're like, slow down there, <laughs> your buddy. Novel pro- your novel probably sucks. <laughs> <laughs> you need material, and you need a competent foundation. So pay attention to this lecture, because it's going to give you stories. It's going to ground you. But yeah. Like, I just feel like when when I'm up against, like, artsy kids that are bored by social science, I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. This is karma. This is karma um, taking exacting its revenge against me for having been a bitch in high school. So <laughs> That's funny. I mean, are, do you, are there any students now that you have, uh, and this is probably obvious, but do you, are there any students now that you have and you, like, see this girl and you're like, ah, oh, she reminds me of me when I was young. She, oh, totally. There will really? be, like, little, little, like traits or flashes of myself where I'll just be like, Oh God, that, that was probably me. And, and that's terrible. Like, uh, uh, I, I must've been really tough to tolerate. Oof. So yeah, so I absolutely have it, but never like a student that I'm like, Oh my God, that person's so much like me. I'll just be bits and pieces that I'm like, Oh, this person's like me or like a friend. You know what I mean? Oh, this person reminds me of so-and-so or yeah. this person reminds me of my mom or, you know what I mean? Like you see it in your students. Cause I deal with what 120 kids a day. So yeah, that, that that's crazy. I mean, like you said, um, you know, uh, a bitch like me or something when you're in high school, and then the, ti- the, the title, the title of the, your book, mean, and you know, you know what what uh, what uh, you know what that that title means for the story and for y- you and your life and your past and everything and, and the the power of being mean. I guess that would be like a good segue, um, just because. I want to figure out, I, I've like just, um, sure. you know, I've been, I've been kind of submerged in your book uh, for a while now because we, you know, worked on the audio book and, and, uh, you know, reading the print and everything like that. But, uh, yeah. what, what, what was that like? How did that all come together kind of in a nutshell? Like where did the, where did that book start? When did you start writing that and how did it find um, its way to coffee house? So I would say that I have been thinking about that book and writing it in my head to a certain degree for maybe like the last eight years. Um, I wanted to write about the incident of sexual assault that kind of anchors the book. Mm-hmm. I had wanted to write about that because I thought it was an interesting story, a slightly extraordinary story, especially because of the weird sort of connection to Michael Jackson that it holds. Right. So I thought it was, it was interesting as almost like a piece of true crime. Um, and then I was also um, very invested in telling that story because I felt a lot of survivor's guilt for having um, not suffered the way that some of the other victims, uh, some of the other victims in the book suffered, especially the one who was murdered. Mm-hmm. And um, and I was I was racked with survivor's guilt. Um, when it came to her death, because, uh, you know, I'm Mexican-American, she was Mexican, and we led these parallel but really different lives. Like, her life was incredibly, like, disadvantaged and underprivileged and just shitty. I mean, it was a hard, hard life, you know? And then it ended in this tragic, grotesque early death. And then I, you know, was given a lot of advantage um, and I was assaulted, but I managed to escape, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the mind wants to make meaning out of what it perceives as injustice or unfairness. It wants to understand why something happened. And so 
Um, I wanted to make meaning out of that particular story, especially the story of my survival. So um, I worked for years on form, and I couldn't seem to pin down a form that was suitable. So I tried more straightforward narratives. I tried satire or parody. I tried um, a really experimental structure and style that was almost more sort of fantasy or science fiction, and none of it seemed to work. And then, um, and then eventually, the 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 style um, or the form, I should say, that it finally took emerged through some conversations that I had with my um, with my editors. Like they they kind of helped me develop the structure, especially opening the um, the narrative in media rest um, and then doing an about face and then going back to the beginning of the story. So and they really helped me um, figure out what the appropriate structure was. Right. Because it's wow. a weird structure. Yeah, totally. It, it very much is. It, it's I, I would say, you know, it, uh, you know, that it is, you know, kind of a crazy structure, but at the same time still maintains, you know, forgive me uh, if, if this is dumb, but a kind of page turner quality to where I like couldn't stop, you know, consuming it entertainment wise, you know, on, uh, that's on really funny and yeah. interesting. Yeah. I, I just, I, I, uh, it was, had that quality to me with the crazy structure, which I, I don't know, at least for me, I love that combination of something that just yeah. won't let me go as well as it's kind of, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, that's one of the things that I'm noticing in reviews or comments that I've received is that people will describe it as being, um, hey, candy. what's up? Oh, you guys are here for candy? Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> hold on. I'm no, sorry. that's great. There's candy right here. Come get it. But take one. Okay. Okay. Hey, uno. Okay, so what was I saying? There's just these kids in here getting candy. <laughs> I'm just trying um, to, just real quick, before we lose that train, you just have to tell me because that's funny. What kind, are you on a front porch of a house right now? Are you in a school? I'm, I'm in my classroom and I have candy in my classroom and I was giving it out during the day and then I have these three beggar children <laughs> from one of my earlier periods who know. What? Well, I'll give you the leftovers. <laughs> See, I, you I'm telling you. It's Miss Gerber, the cool Tomorrow. teacher. The cool teacher has all the candy. That's <laughs> okay, what I thought. Okay, bye, guys. <laughs> That's funny. Um, no, and I dressed up like a piece of pizza today. I saw that. Yeah, that, that really uh, fun. Yeah. That's me. You sent me that photo, and I was like, man, that school looks really fun. Yeah, I dressed up as pizza, and then guess what I had for lunch? Pizza. Pizza. So I was a cannibal. <laughs> I was so excited. I'm all pizza eating pizza. Oh my god. Uh, it was really exciting. It was really really exciting. And then um. Oh, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, that people have said that, like, they're, they're, they find the experimental structure interesting, but not alienating. Because frequently experimental structure and style can be alienating, but that they also find the book entertaining. And so that, to me, is strange that, that people are finding pleasure and entertainment in a structure that is traditionally kind of... Um, um, kind of esoteric, you know? Right. No, totally. I mean, but that's gotta be at least, at least for me, um, that's gotta be one of the, you know, the great goals is, you know, uh, being able to, to be experimental and try completely new things while not alienating anybody. I mean, that's, yeah. that's such an awesome combination. Cause I mean, how often do we, you know, read something, 
you know, so you have, of course, different folks, different strokes, but do we read something and it's like amazing and interesting and experimental, but also just like mm-hmm. kind of falls down the spiral of like wordplay and you're just kind of lost and you're just yeah. like, ah, you know, yeah. but yeah. to maintain a, nar- a strong narrative uh, and, and, you know, all sorts of readers can enjoy it. That's, uh, yeah, that's yeah. good stuff. And I always prefer art and literature is that seeks to amuse or entertain or present some sort of novelty to like the reader or the viewer. Like, I, I prefer that sort of art and literature. I don't think that art and literature has to do that. I don't think that it necessarily must exist to entertain. Sure. But when I sit down to create something, typically, um, I, I want a person, I want whoever approaches what I do to come away with some sense of amusement or some sense of joy or sense of humor. Um, uh, because I figure, why else would somebody sit and devote their time to reading something that I've written unless they're going to be able to extract some sort of joy from it? Do you know what I mean? Of course, yeah. No, I mean, um, I, I agree with so, you completely. Yeah, so I feel like it's almost my responsibility, but I feel that generally. I often feel like this responsibility to entertain other people. I think that's why I inject like humor into a lot of what I write, even when it's essays or poems. I'll even inject humor and people are so like averse to um, funny in high literature and funny in poetry, but it's hard for me to help myself. It's really hard for me to help myself. I tell those people just get out of town because, uh, (laughs) (laughs) because there's no reason that you have to to exclude one of the, you know, the highest virtues in humor from, uh, you know, from high literature. It doesn't make sense. I mean, that was one of the the original things that drew me to your work uh, when we were talking to our our, our good pals at Coffee House was like your ability to uh, (laughs) sprinkle funny one-liners where I out loud go, ha ha, even (laughs) even in something dark, you know? Yeah, that's the other thing that that I keep hearing commented is that it's about rape, but don't worry, it's funny. (laughs) Right, yeah, exactly. (laughs) It is. is like it's so dark and it's so tragic but you're gonna laugh out loud and so i feel like um i feel like this is gonna earn me the reputation of the funny rape lady or something <laughs> the <laughs> funny rape miss gerba the cool teacher slash funny rape lady she's awesome know, exactly <laughs> i'm like is this what my parents wanted did they raise the funny rape lady is that is that their <laughs> like, oh my god like imagine having that be your daughter oh yeah my daughter is the funny rape lady like it's it's funny. <laughs> uh, oh yeah. God! Well, let me. So, the the last thing I wanted to ask you about that was. Okay. You know, obviously, you uh, you know, you recorded this book, so you narrated it yourself, and yeah. and uh, you know, audiobooks or recorded books, recorded literature. You know, sometimes yeah. uh, people use an actor, and sometimes the author will read it themselves. Not. Yeah. You know, obviously, mm-hmm. it occurred to me. I'm sure to you too that this kind of story would be silly for someone else to read this. Um, yeah. And what what was that experience like? Uh, narr- like reading the book out loud in front of people and going through it again in in kind of, I'm guessing a different way than you were while editing and writing the book. That's a good question. It was horrible and great mm-hmm. simultaneously. Sure. Horrible because I don't know about you, but I know this from other writers that like. You just, you don't want to, you don't want to read the book after it's done. Do you sure. know what I mean? It's yep. horrible to have to sit down and read it because all you do is you see things you would have done differently. That's yeah. all you do. Like the whole time you're reading it, you're like, oh my God, I can't believe I did this. Do you know what I mean? That's funny. You said that oftentimes in the studio, I'll tell an author, you're going to want to change things because you're reading this right now. 
but try not yeah. to edit in real time because then, you know, yeah. you're, you're going to want to do that, but, you know, try to oh, resist yeah. it. You know, maybe it's a good yeah. thing. Maybe that's a new way that some people find they're like copy editing the last draft or something. Well, that's something that I actually do when I work sometimes is I will read the work back to myself mm -hmm. because I want to hear the rhythm and I want to hear the cadence. Sure. So I'll read it aloud to myself, and then sometimes I'll realize it's not working by reading it aloud to myself. And I read a lot. I do a lot of public reading. You do, yeah. And so I'm very comfortable um, uh, reading my work aloud. And a lot of my work, I actually write it for, um, well, not for, but with the understanding that it will probably at some point get read aloud, which means it better not be fucking boring. You know what I mean? Sure. <laughs> like, yeah. It better be funny because like, you know, if you're going to read something aloud, typically you can go one of two routes. You can go funny or you can go violent and grotesque. If you want your audience to stay with you, sure. you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like really like the audiences have really based desires and they want to be titillated. And so if you can do one of those three things, if you can make it funny, violent or grotesque, the audience will be with you. And so I always remind myself that, like, you know, people are kind of animals when it comes to what they want to consume. And so I need to fold that into my work. And then I've learned how to deliver it because I've read so much. So for me, like, when I was reading the, when I was doing the audiobook, it was sort of like one of my public readings where I was like, okay, I kind of adopt a persona when I read in public. It's almost like a, a deadpan persona. Yeah. Because the work is so, the work is so intense that I feel like if I pair it with an intense sort of passion in my voice, it's actually going to have a dulling effect. But if I pair this really intense work with a deadpan voice, it amplifies sort of the craziness of the work and lets the craziness sort of take the spotlight on its own. Right. As um, opposed to the, the dramatization of it, you're saying yeah. that the, <laughs> the work itself will, will kind of succeed, uh, shine through better with the deadpan delivery. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I, and I tend to do that with a lot of my work. It's so kind of over the top and so hyperbolic that it's like, it, it can't be paired with a hyperbolic delivery or it will fall flat. Sure. Yeah. So I was aware of that, but at the same time, as I was reading it, I was like, Oh God, this is what I changed. And this is what I changed. And this is what I changed. <laughs> yeah. So, so it was simultaneously awesome and shitty. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds awesome to, uh, you know, going you. through going through the work with our, our sound engineer and stuff and figuring out, you know, uh, piecing it together as the, as the finished book. I mean, it sounds great. I love I love the recording. I love the the print as well. And uh, great. Yeah, I mean, did did, did Coffee House were they kind of on on uh, from the beginning with this book or when when did they jump on? Yeah. Uh, they, um, they were on the from the, the start. Oh, they were there from the get-go because, awesome. um, well, not necessarily Coffee House, but Emily Books, which has their imprint through Coffee House. Right, Emily Books. Because I'm on that right. Emily imprint, yeah. Uh -huh. um, uh, the Well, Emily had contacted me and asked me if I had any unpublished manuscripts. She was interested in my work and starting this imprint. So I sent her, like, um, a, a collection of stuff that was really disparate. And she was like, you've done stuff like this before. I want something more substantial and something that is whole, not a sort of patchwork of poetry and this and that and this and that. She didn't want a melange. So I was like, okay, well, I'm working on this memoir. It's not complete. It's kind of all over the place, but take a peek. And so it was only about half done at that point. It was just a, like a nugget. So I sent that to her and she's like, I want it. 
but let's 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 grow it. You know what I mean? Right. So so that was how it came into being was through her solicitation. That's awesome. What is uh, what did your um, I don't you know you you don't even have to say, but what does your family think about uh, about the book and, and being written about and and stuff like that? Is uh, they're all in, super involved in reading it in gung ho, or you know, is it a separate thing? Well, I give them my I always give them my work. Like I give them copies of it because I know my mom likes to have stuff that I've done. Sure. But I will tell them sometimes, like if I know that what I've written will upset them, I'll tell them you should probably not read this. Sure. Um, and then they'll honor that. They'll be like, okay. And they know me well enough to know that if I'm telling them not to read something, they had better not read it. <laughs> right, it must be really bad if, if uh, yeah, if you're saying so. Exactly. I feel yeah. like for me, I'm so contrary that if you said that to me, that I would just want to read it more. It's like, don't press the button. Make sure you don't press that button. Oh, totally. <laughs> right? Totally, totally, totally. Don't think about elephants. <laughs> yeah, exactly. About elephants. Exactly. But, um, but no, but my mom knows what's good for her. <laughs> <laughs> so if I tell her that she, she honors it and they're really supportive. Um, they're really, really supportive and, um, they've, they've always been that way. They've always sort of counseled me, like get a real job, have a real job, but also do, um, you know, also have your art life or your writing life and figure out how to balance both responsibly. So they've, they've been those sorts of parents, which I'm, I'm grateful for. That's amazing. Pam. That they didn't, that they didn't urge me to do something stupid, like chase my dreams. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that they, that they encouraged me to be sensible about dreams. You know sure. what I mean? So, um, Yeah. My parents are really pragmatic people, especially my father. My father's much more pragmatic than my mother. My mother's a little bit out there, um, but but she's forced into a life of pragmatism because of my father. <laughs> that's funny. That's the same. I don't know if that's a you know a, a classic combo, but my my mother and father same thing. Father pragmatic, down to earth. Mother, you know, uh, kind of more wild and flighty in good ways. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like my mother is like the Tasmanian devil. Just, there's like this weird whirlwind that you're like, what did you just say? I, I don't understand. Is that English? And then my dad is just, my dad is like, like, like my dad will isolate himself in a room where he will teach himself languages that he will speak with nobody else. <laughs> like, like, uh, he's just, he's kind of a hermit, you know? Well, I mean, they must be, Hello? they must be, okay. they must be pretty awesome people to have created, uh, Miriam Gerba. So, uh, oh, I, I, I applaud, I applaud them. them. <laughs> yeah, please do. I applaud their abilities. <laughs> well, what's, uh, what's, go, what's, you. what's going on next for you? What, what are you working on next? Anything, uh, you want to plug that's happening in the near future? That's a good question. So I've been writing, um, short, uh, short articles here and there, for example, like, a lot of sort of what are you reading type of pieces um, and then doing some art criticism um, and I'm writing like an afterword for um, a friend's book that's going to be released um, and then I'm working on a book of popular history um, or not necessarily a book of popular history but a book of history that's going to be written in a more popular as opposed to academic style mm-hmm. um, and it's likely going to be California history. Very cool. Yeah. So that's, um, that's, that's what's on my brain right now. I'm also interested in doing more, um, political writing, writing that is like, like politically philosophical, um, or politically critical. So those are things that I have in mind as well. 
Very cool. Well, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, all that, all that sounds amazing. And, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, the book, I mean, just on a, on a personal note, uh, really, really huge fan of the book and I'm telling everybody I know to get it. So, oh, uh, thank you. And yeah. Thanks so much for doing the, um, the audio with us. That's, um, it's a yeah, great, it's a great, it was great, my recording, pleasure. great recording to have in our library. And, uh, thank you. yeah, for real. What do you, are you going to be handing out more candy today? Yeah, I'm probably going to head over to my boyfriend's house this evening and then give candy to children from from his home. Yes. I love it. Are you I'll, dressed as I'll a slice of pizza, pizza right pizza. now? Uh, no, I took off my pizza because the crust was getting on my nerves. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> the crust was getting on my nerves. <laughs> yes. Uh, and then kids kept making comments about my pepperoni, and I was like, this is just going too far. And then... Um, <laughs> and then <laughs> They're like, your pepperoni's dry. I was like, listen, kid. Dang. Don't you dare talk about Don't be my talking about my pepperoni. But, um, exactly. I'm getting pissed. <laughs> but I also have a nun's costume that I might wear later on. Ooh, yes. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a nun this weekend. Um, that was fun. I was the only nun at the party, so... Only none at the party. Miriam Gerba. That's yeah. a yeah. That's, a, that's the perfect yeah. line right there. I guess. Um, well, <laughs> I guess. Thank you so much for uh, for chatting with You're me so today, welcome. Miriam. Yeah, I really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, yeah, me too, for sure. Okay, well, okay. Yeah, hopefully we'll uh, we'll we'll uh, meet up at some point soon. And uh, yeah, don't be a stranger. Okay, great. All right, have a great one. Happy Halloween. Okay, thanks for Halloween. Bye bye. <laughs> Okay, well, that was my chat with Miriam Gerba, and she was charming and funny, friendly, and sounds like a really, really cool teacher. I definitely don't think that I had any super cool, hip, tattooed writer teachers when I was in high school. I think the problem was I didn't, I didn't go to, um, I didn't go to cool high schools. Maybe, maybe that high school is really, really dope, and everybody who works there is a badass. But anyway. Yeah, that book, uh, I've read it and listened to it, obviously, and it is it is really good. Very funny, very dark, sad, fucked up, but in a way that, as you heard before, is entertaining, and I think you're really going to like it. But, um, but yeah, uh, to prove it, here is a excerpt from Miriam Gerba's new novel, Mean. Acorn. The neighborhood we pioneered as Molochs, Mexican Polacks, remained tranquil and gorgeous. Birds purred at dawn. Eucalyptus leaves, whole carpets of them, murmured mentholated nothings. Grinning dog owners walked border collies toward sunsets made for lovers. To the east, in fading pastels, little mountains swelled. To the west, a valley cradled our small town, named after one of Columbus's ships, a smear of beach and the Pacific Ocean. I'd kneel on my carpet at my tall bedroom window. I didn't look east or west. I looked ahead. I watched the grass it was my job to tend. It ended where the real plants lived, along our front yard hillside. Across the street, to the left side of our hill, an ophthalmologist and his family lived in a fake villa. 
A one-eyed widow lived to the right side of our hill. She wore an eye patch and imperiled her remaining eye by hopping around her backyard tennis court with a racket. The payout from her husband's life insurance policy had bought her the court. I think her eye paid for it, too. Vineyards grew behind these two backyards. Rows of vegetables followed the grapes. After the veggies, soft mountains, melting ice cream or mashed potatoes with butter. They created our valley. Being surrounded by so much leisure, tranquility, and nature amplified my quiet anger. Every cell that was me was mad and jealous. The cells that were me envied the mellow that was my view, this California. I hated that the grapes glistened and dangled without anyone yanking their tendrils. The gently smiling morning doves that sailed over our lawn pissed me off, and the sugar bushes along our driveway made me want to be them. Nobody was shoving their fingers into them. Occasionally, quail families darted into them, but they came and went with such speed and lightness that the bushes only felt the suggestion of quail. The front yard entity I had most in common with was the acorn. It kept its mouth shut. It was small. It was two-toned. It held a bitterness that in certain cases, such as ingestion by horses, poisoned, and I'd found a way to advertise my bitterness. I rolled my skirts up to the cusp of where it counted so people who were into that kind of thing could see my vertically scowling cunt. Underwear covered the cunt, but it scowled so deeply you could see it through its cotton mask. My skirt-wearing style attracted admirers, and since Democrats were raising me, I was nice to them. Niceness is social justice. I led my admirers to the dirt behind the science classrooms and kissed them. One makeout partner was a man who ended up mired in the quicksand of eighth grade. He smoked cigarettes, had a rat tail, rode a BMX, and wouldn't be following me to high school. I tongue wrestled a neo Nazi. I suspected this skinhead wanted to taste what he hated so no one could accuse him of not at least trying it. Unlocking his lips, which were surprisingly full for a racist, from mine, he leaned around my neck toward my ear. You taste like chicken, he whispered. That's because I'm scared, I whispered back. By eighth grade, being called a hoe was water off my wet back. I was a paradoxical hoe, though, a bookworm hoe with a fading Mexican complexion. Young people of color are supposed to enjoy looting and eating trans fats, not sustained silent reading, but I found a way to reconcile my assigned stereotype with my passions. I microwaved nachos and ate them while reading Jackie Collins' paperbacks I stole from my mother.
trans fats, looting, and literature. I chose to read Sophie's Choice as part of my English class's readathon. The number of pages I read filled the classroom wall readathon chart way before I was ready to admit that no nerd could catch up with me. I stole a piece of graph paper from math class and used a ruler to draw an extension for my row. I cut it out and stapled it to the bulletin board without asking my teacher's permission. I filled my annex with more book titles and more page numbers. I annexed that annex with another annex. I annexed that annex's annex with another annex and filled it. I wrote Anne Frank's name in there, even though it was cheating. I read her in seventh grade, a whole year before. Despite my intense bookwormery, my hoe status eclipsed the rest of me. I gave in to the magnetic pull of other hoes. One of these hoes, Janet, we'll say her last name was Jackson, was gifted with an ass that didn't match her ethnicity, a Swedish face with an Oakland booty. Her hobbies included abstract expressionism, oil painting, and the fight against cystic acne. I wanted to suggest to Janet that she combine these hobbies but kept this idea to myself. We hung out with a freckled undercover Mexican named Luna Smith. Luna's real last name had been Sanchez, but her dad legally changed it so the company he owned, Smiths Etc., wouldn't be associated with anything as foul as a romance language. It was lunchtime, and the three of us, plus Janet's skater lover, Bobby, were hanging out beneath untouchable monkey bars. We were too mature to dangle from them. We had body hair that required grooming. Janet stood between two poles. Her pose reminded me of a cage dancer's in a music video. Bobby stood behind her, kneading her camel curves. Since her eyelashes were blonde, it was sometimes hard to tell if they were there or what they were up to, but the way the sun was hitting them that afternoon, I could tell they were definitely fluttering. Low-key, she was having an orgasm. I squatted in the sand, watching popular girls walk the track. This was how they burned off the calories from the almond they split for lunch. Across the blacktop, by the fence separating us from the elementary school, Bullies chased a dork into the pines. On his way past a retarded girl in a pantsuit, one bully screamed, Nice tit! Half the girl's chest swelled with a supremely developed breast. The other half of the girl's chest looked like mine. I envied this girl's full boob, but pitied her asymmetry. I prayed a good Samaritan would teach her to stuff that Good Samaritan would not be me. That was it. That was an excerpt from Miriam Gerba's new memoir, Mean, out November 7th from Coffeehouse Press and its imprint. 
Emily Books. So please, for the love of everything that is holy and unholy, because it's Halloween, get this book. Get the print book from Coffee House. Get the audio from Us Talking Book. Um, you can get that stuff uh, on the World Wide Web at talkingbook.pub. There's a link to the print and the audio. Um, you can also find other books like the Sarah book by Scott McClanahan that we did, uh, Literally Show Me a Healthy Person by Darcy Wilder, who I'm going to talk to soon. Um, what else? Tales of Falling and Flying by Ben Laurie. Uh, and just a bunch more cool recordings from really cool authors. Um, yeah, so that was the podcast, episode seven. And now I'm going to go upstairs and I'm going to run to Harris Teeter, which is a supermarket in North Carolina. And I'm going to buy a bunch of candy and I'm going to um, just hand it out in case any kids come by. I don't know if any kids come by on this street. I'm pretty sure they will. Maybe I'll give them some audiobooks too, or maybe just some, uh, some, you know, advanced reading copies of the print books that uh, the lovely publishers that we love so much uh, send us. I'll just like hand out like a pre-release copy of Miriam Gerba's Mean to a kid with some tiny Snickers bars or something. I don't know. I'm probably not allowed to do that for a myriad of reasons. Um, but anyway, happy Halloween to everybody. Um, you know, it's it's going to be it's going to be one spooky night. Am I right? Huh? Am I right? <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. But anyway, um, yeah, we got uh, all this original music, which is completely badass, is made by Keegan Grambois, the opening theme. Uh, Holler Boys, that's Scott McClanahan and Chris Hoxley's band. Um, uh, and then the ending music you're going to hear, uh, Alex Sturgis, originally composed for the audiobook Sophia by Michael Bible from Melville House. So that's the gang. And I hope you liked the episode. Go get Miriam Gerba's book, Mean, November 7th. Read it, listen to it, do, do everything with it. Um, happy Halloween. I already said that. And bye. Like a bishop who has forsaken sympathy chasing sister squares I was lit before I The window.